When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the very latest episode of Unfiltered, which features the person who has probably, in the, in the early days of this podcast, been requested by more people than any other as a potential subject for the interview. I, I speak, of course, of John Ronson, and he will be talking... Uh, a lot, but by no means exclusively about his latest project, The Butterfly Effect, which is a, a seven-part audio series or, or podcast, as the kids call them, um, looking at the changing nature of the porn industry, which might sound a little bit um, uh, sort of sleazy and or um, vicarious, but it's actually anything anything but. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and it begins, really, with him seeing a hotel receptionist the way that the receptionist looked at a porn star that he was meeting in his hotel in Los Angeles for a different project. And just from that tiny seed, this is one of the things I love about Ronson, from that tiny seed, you know, hours and hours of first-class, first-person reportage evolved. We'll, we'll find out how now. So welcome to Unfiltered John Ronson. It's a, a, a genuine pleasure to have you here. Mm. I saw a mouthful of tea. It was lovely. To, it's lovely to see you. I, did, I started that deliberately as you as you reached for your mug. It's the first <laughs> first sip past your lips. I thought I'd dive in and, and yeah. start the tape. Let, let, let's begin with when we last met, because you came on my radio show about a year ago, almost to the day, and, and Donald Trump had just been elected mm-hmm. U.S. president. I made a clumsy attempt to blame it all on you for bringing Alex Jones right. kind of into the mainstream. Yeah, but you know what? He would have like he was going to make it without me. With or without me, Alex Jones was going to make it. Although I have been held responsible for Trump's rise a couple of times over the last year because um, I was the man who kind of gave the world Alex Jones for the first time. And then, you know, extraordinarily, Alex suddenly gained power because yes. Donald Trump was a fan of his, you know. Have, his... You, have you spoken to him since? Alex, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we text from time to time. Um, I I've been kind of poking around his world the last the last year or so and and um, I, I haven't done anything with it and I don't know what to do with it but Alex got wind of it okay and left a long voicemail message and texted me and uh, you know try, I think trying to work out whether I was what, what your angle yeah was whether I was friend time. or foe he, he's quite he's quite 
symbolic actually of the things that interest you isn't he in a way because you're trying to almost make sense you, you presume there must be a point at which a penny will drop when you investigate these people and everything will make sense but mm. part of the charm of some of your work is that possibly it never does because it I, can't yeah alex is kind of a he is the sort of like he's a kind of wall that you end up just banging your nose against um you, you can't break through uh, especially because Alex has kind of got worse mm. over the 20 years. You know, most people you would think, you know, when they accumulate the flotsam and jetsam of life's tragedies, become more empathetic yes. and yes. more sort of, you know, understanding of other people's issues. But Alex has has kind of descended rather than ascended of, of the last kind of 20 years. Well, I suppose he'd argue that it's working. So why on earth would he retreat from the <laughs> from the position when it's earned him the ear of a president? It, it, true. And, he, you know, I think Alex does care about his ethno-nationalism. His ethno-nationalism. Yeah. This, 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 of course, was in Them, Adventures with Extremists, and you came back to it in the Kindle book last year. The elephant An elephant in the, in the room. room. Adventures with Extremists. Oddly, I mean, it's almost ended up casting Ian Paisley in the role of the moderate, hasn't it, in the in the aftermath? Because the other person that you spent time with for that was Omar Bakri Mohammed, who you saw as quite a comical character, and yet who has been seen to have inspired genuine now, mm. sort of 16 years later, he has inspired genuine terrorists. And, and now Omar Bakri's in jail in Beirut, in right, solitary yeah. confinement, possibly for the rest of his life. And his son, his very sweet, little mm. boy Mohammed mm. who I remember being within Hyde Park like 20 years ago and, and he was saying how scared he was that his father was going to get into trouble because um, he just watched the biography of Malcolm X and he was right. worried that his father was going to end up getting like assassinated and poor sweet you know lovely little kid I can't I don't know what age he was but maybe 12 13 mm. something like that um, I really you know empathized with him a couple of years ago he joins ISIS and then gets killed by ISIS. ISIS turn out to be terrible bosses. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but I felt really upset when I heard that. Of course. Like, like poor sweet kid, you know. Never had a chance. Close, yeah, you close your eyes, you open them again, and he's an ISIS fighter getting getting murdered. The world has turned. Yeah. If, 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 if we then sought to sort of identify what prompts you to paint a target on something, what would what what's your kind of thinking on that front? For me, the the men who stare at goats, possibly, which is where you looked at the American Army's employment of weird new. That possibly is any any definition of a Ronson topic I can come up with. Sometimes I think the men who stares at goats undermines the definition. Uh, yeah, I think so. The men. Oh, do you? Wow. Yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> um, the men who stare at goats is the only thing I ever did under pressure. Right. Okay. Uh, did, um, so I always think of it as like the kind of, you know, of all of my children, it's the kind of errant sort of child that's sort of a bit disformed. Because so thematically, yeah, well, the, it's uh, everyday craziness that interests you. That was the subtitle of your Guardian collection. And, yeah. and, the, and the men who stare at goats is anything but everyday craziness. It's, it's standout, extraordinary craziness. Yeah, well, there's a few reasons why I don't love the men who stare at goats as much as the other things that I've done. It's probably... I, I kind of love everything I've done, of kind of, and there's bits of the Minister of Goats I really like, um, but I basically don't like it as much um, for a few reasons. So what what had happened was uh, I'd had I'd just had my first hit. Uh, the book Them had come out, yes. 
and um, and and there was a documentary series to go alongside it called Secret Rulers of the World. It was the first time I'd ever done anything that was a hit. You know, them had made it into the bestseller list, and Secret Rulers of the World was getting like great reviews and big viewing figures. And um, and I didn't know what to do next. And and my my basically Channel Four. And this has never happened really to me since. And I'm glad, even though what I'm about to say. Well, it's a poison chalice, basically. I Channel Four said, "Here's half a million pounds." do you know go off and make some more films and and i was like even then i was like this i don't think this is going to end well because um at the same time there was this guy called matt collins do you remember matt he's an art critic he made this he'd made this amazing uh show called this is modern art yes 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 yeah and bbc or channel ford said to him like here's some more money make some more and he then made this terrible show called Hello Culture. Right. And I was thinking, yes. shit, I hope, I hope whatever I do next isn't going to be Hello Culture. Um, <laughs> and it was um, it was kind of nightmare. We were going back and forward um, to America, not getting anything. I was like going crazy. I was getting like living in constant motion sickness, missing my kid growing up. We'd go like all the way to America and we just wouldn't get anything usable. We were like blailing around. So it was really unpleasant and stressful. And then finally, we found the story of the Menesteric Goats. Yes. Um, and that felt like a real breakthrough. But I tell you what the problem was. I, like, I never, I went through no, I went through no personal change doing that story. Everything else I've done, I've gone through a change. Like with the psychopath test, I became a kind of, you know, uh, like a sort of, power crazed psychopath spotter which then gave me the ability to like tell stories about how mental health labeling can can be kind of tyrannical yes, yes. Uh, and the same with so you've been publicly shamed i kind of completely changed my mind about you know outrage online and and but with the minister it goes like i never believed it was possible to kill a goat just by staring at it so i could never tell the story in the kind of empathetic way that I always like to. They, they, I could never truly get inside their heads because I never believed that those powers were real. Well, that makes perfect sense to me then. I, I, mm. I was a little nervous about suggesting that it might somehow stand out from the rest of the canon. And we'll move on to the butterfly effect, the latest, um, the latest project, which looks at the kind of um, proliferation of, of a new kind of pornography, but does does fit the same parameters of finding out how extraordinary things are unfolding in the same environment that you live in. I, for me, I think most people have got a sort of John Ronson pivot moment where they realised, I mean, they realise you're a bit special. Oh. For me, it was it was it was the article that you wrote about the um, the hypnotist disciple when you wrote so honestly about your own genuine crippling fear that every time you weren't with your wife and child, something terrible was going to happen to them. And you yeah. wanted to eventually find a way of training yourself out of that mindset. And it took you into the world of sort of, it, it, not Paul McKenna, but that type of... Yeah, no, Paul McKenna was he involved, involved in it, yeah. isn't he? And Richard Bandler. It's true. I, I, I used to suffer from a kind of crippling anxiety that if I couldn't get my wife and son on the phone, um, they, they were dead. Yes. Um, and I would picture how they had died. Um Sometimes, when my when my son was really young, my wife had fallen down the stairs, was lying at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck, a kettle was boiling, and my son was reaching up for the flex of a of a just boiled kettle, um, as I was phoning and the phone was ringing out. Uh, 
Yeah, honestly, I just felt really upset just even remembering that. Well, well, obviously, and it was that level of self-examination that made me think, crikey, this is a guy I should be reading every week. So I I did. And that that would be, how long ago would that be now? Uh, That was when my son's 19 now. Yeah, so Um, pretty much most of his life ago. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't, so Paul McKenna kind of cured me. He hypnotized me and cured me of of when I when my wife didn't pick up the phone I no longer think she's dead but I never asked him to cure me about my son because he was just a baby at the time so I, I couldn't kind of imagine that one day he'd be old enough to pick up the phone so now if I can't get my son on the phone I still think he's dead oh lord yeah <laughs> so so both get a half cure me <laughs> and, and what that perhaps suggested to me was that you you think that by completely I, I, it's almost sort of with unbelievable levels of honesty, by examining a subject, in this case yourself, by going in so completely, you might achieve some sort of solution. You might achieve some sort of resolution. And when you, 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 if you can do it with your own life, as you attempted to do in that, which was only ever a magazine article, I think. Yeah, it, it, it ended up in a collection I wrote called Lost at Sea, but it, yes. was, it was just going to be for The Guardian. And if you can do it with your own life, mm. then that, that almost to the date, because you'd had your film about clubbed class, trying to blag your way into the jet set, your, your book rather, into the jet set mm-hmm. lifestyle. But as you say, well, your first hit was them, Adventures with Extremists. It was almost as if you then took what in the column was a, was a, a forensic examination of your own existence in search of answers, and then you moved it on to forensic examinations of much bigger mysteries in the hope of finding answers. Yeah, I think so. Um I think the reason why I started writing about m- myself and my own frailties was because I felt very annoyed with people who do the kind of thing that I do, but from a position of moral superiority. How do you mean? Um, people, you know, people who consider themselves like representatives of righteous society. So, so for instance, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, I, I, I'm, I, I feel very anti-hierarchical. So the kind of story where somebody like me would, um, you know, go to say, a, I don't know, a neo-Nazi compound. Mm. No, neo-Nazi compound's the wrong. That's the that's the wrong sure. example because we can all. Yeah, there yeah, is they, an objective. Exactly, they ought to be um, taken down. Apparently. Porn's not a bad example. Yeah, porn is a very good example. Um, I because I've just done this yes. like year-long. Um, adventure into the, in looking at the tech takeover of the porn industry and pretty much every journalist who goes into the porn world does it from a position of moral superiority uh, okay. the, the porn people are not humans to them by and large they're kind of um, uh, ingredients in their preconceived ideology of the mm. story that they want to tell mm. and the story could be about how porn is bad or it could be about how Porn performers are, are all exploited, um, but there's always some prejudgment. And and when you fill your head with ideology and prejudgment, what what there's no space for curiosity and and and, and a kind of shared humanity. You're trying to fit the facts to your preconception rather than yeah. trying to find them out there for yourself and you. Yeah, and you know I used to do that when I was when I was younger to to an extent, um, you know, but I kind of matured my way out of it. And <laughs> and and so the reason why I, I sort of write about my own yeah. frailties is because I think it, it puts me on a level playing field with the. With, with the people I write about who are more obviously frail. 
rather than having that kind of artistic distance you're yeah. writing from inside the tent exactly and you know rather than that kind of i'm better than you or what yeah. the thing i really hate is like when the you know when the the journalist is like in a sort of unspoken way is like i am normal um i am you know i am the norm um there's a line towards the end of so you've been publicly shamed where i say um, the great thing, uh, where I say that um, on social media we like to see ourselves as nonconformists, but all of this is creating a much more conformist, <laughs> conservative world. Yeah. You know, look, we're saying we are normal. This is the average. Mm. We are we are uh, defining the boundaries of normality by tearing apart the people outside of it. And you know, that's why I'm against some shaming campaigns on social media um, because it's it's doing that. Whereas if you write about your own frailties, then you're not. A representative of conformist conservative society. You're on the same, you know, you're on the same level playing field as the yes. people you're writing about. It takes a degree of personal confidence, though. You, you, you mean because it, it's almost contradictory to describe the anxieties that you have suffered mm. from, but also to be comfortable enough in your own skin to expose it all. Yeah, um, you know, I think mental health stigma has really changed just yes. in my lifetime. Yes. Um, I think people who were you know, I remember growing up in Cardiff, like if somebody had like mental health issues, it was like they were like the kind of, um, mm. you know, crazy person down the street that you wanted to avoid. And I think people really feel that way at all anymore. I, I think a whole bunch of people came along um, and I was one of them with anxiety. Um, but, you know, other people with, you know, depression or, you know, whatever it was that they were, you know, yes. that they had, who were just very open and honest about it. And, and I think... Um, uh, that sort of move that changes sort of, everything. Do you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's emerged entirely unintentionally as something of a theme in in these. You know, we're still in the first dozen episodes of Unfiltered, but but in the early days, from odd odd people like Russell Brand leading into Alistair Campbell, but all speaking to the same truth mm. that you just described. That simply by talking about their own problems, in their cases, addiction and depression, and and actually a fair degree of crossover. Um, it, mm. it, it, it normalizes it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, they're probably they probably feel the same way that, that yes. I do, which is that, well, why why hide it? It's like it's a it's a part of the human condition, and just you know, it's no more shameful than any other part of the human condition. No, or any other illness. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it, any, yeah, exactly, any other illness. It, you know, the way I I see it, as long as somebody isn't cruel to another person, then. Um, Everything is is everything benefits from empathy and compassion and curiosity. What was your childhood like in Cardiff? What was it, what were you what was John Ronson like growing up? Uh, I was a I was a very um, banal and unremarkable um, remarkable only in the sense that I was very unpopular. Were you? <laughs> yeah, and um, at Cardiff High School, um, I'm sh I have no doubt that. That's followed me around my whole life, you know. Uh, well, how did the unpopularity manifest itself? Were you hung uh, up from the coat hooks, or were you basically? Just... Yeah, I remember one time I was um, I was blindfolded and my hands were tied behind my back, and I was stripped and thrown into the playground. Uh, I don't. I, I can't if I, that's probably as bad as it got. Yes. Um, how do you? I mean, what's in your mind when that's happening? How are you at the time? Yeah, I just can't wait to get. Fuck out of Cardiff. Make it stop. Yeah. stop. Well, I was always, I, like, I always suspected that everything would be okay in the long run. Why? 
I don't know. I just I had a sort of confidence in my. Uh, I always thought I'd, I'd, like I was going to do okay in life. Confidence I, in your talent, you were about to say. Yeah, I thought something. once I. I tell you what really helps. My my grandparents lived in London, um, in Portman Square, just next door to Selfridges. Quite fancy. I say. <laughs> when they died, we thought we're going to make some money out of that flat. But then it turned out they were on a lease and it wasn't right. freehold. And it was like five years but, left on the lease. Yes. So we made nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but because they lived in London, um, I spent, you know, frequently during my childhood, I, I would, you know, go to London. And when I was like 13 or 14, I would just, um, my parents and, you know, my grandparents would all be sitting and chatting and I'd like leave the room and I'd, and I'd have no money on me. But I'd get on a bus for as long as until the bus driver asked for my fare. And then I'd jump off the bus and then get on another bus. And I would just spend like entire days doing that, just going around London on different buses, jumping off and jumping on and jumping off. Exploring. Yeah, just exploring and just having my, you know, just exactly yeah, having some self-worth. And, and, uh, uh. and then I'd come back. After a while, I'd start to think, shit, I hope my parents haven't like called the police. And I'd come back a few hours later. And they hadn't even noticed. <laughs> had gone. <laughs> so that's what the seventies was like. Yes, it's true. Yeah, seventies and eighties, they wouldn't even notice you. Have you, have you. have you had any catch up with any of the people you were at Cardiff High School with? Yeah. I mean, did, did you want to? Did you feel any need for some sort of? No, uh, I, I don't feel like it. Like because it affects some people forever. But yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean you want to go back and, and yeah. wreak vengeance or, or or forgive or whatever it may be. Well, actually, <clears throat> um, my my. Father died a couple of months ago, two months ago. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had Alzheimer's. He was very old. So I, I, so I went back and spent a few days in Cardiff. I went to the funeral, and my my closest and probably like really kind of only real friend um, back then, uh, this guy called Dick Johns was he he writes stories as well so he was giving a talk at chapter arts center so the day after my father's funeral i went to see dick um doing doing some talks and, and a whole bunch of people from cardiff high were there so i did for the first time in in decades Gosh. start talking to you know kids i knew back then beth and morgan and people like that and um and it was kind of slightly odd it's like it's you know it's none of it's no one's fault that you know because Bullies don't think this is gonna this is gonna affect you for sure. You know, the person that I'm bullying is gonna be living with this for the rest of their lives. Um, so I don't blame them at all. And in fact, Dick and Bethan were two people who didn't bully me. Right. But but I did walk away feeling very happy to see Dick and Bethan, very pleased to see Dick because he's such a good storyteller. And he was he was in the office, like he's had some real success okay. in his life. Yeah. Um and but also feeling like you know, I'm trying to think of the right words. It's not like "fuck you" because no. because they didn't like intend to sure. to sort of sully my mental health. But I, I was sort of quite pleased. Like yes. I didn't want to get. I didn't want to. You know what? I left chapter thinking I could actually get sucked back into the psychodrama. Right. You know, like when you go back to school for for. You need to go back home for Christmas yes. and everybody's... And you're still, you're resurrect an argument from 1978. Yeah. Or, I... listening to you, I may have misunderstood, it's, it's, it's if you've been dumped and you've had this person in the back of your mind for years and they've never really left the back of your mind. There's always one or two in everybody's life. And then you see him or her and there's nothing. And it's mm. an amazing relief to realise that actually, yeah. although there was a big part of your life, it's not 
as big as it was or as big as it could have been? That's not what I was thinking. No, no I was thinking... One out of two then, on my, yeah. on my insights. <laughs> no, it was more... It was more... Um, these people right. still have the power to... Oh, okay. Me. So they would. you could have gone back down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it were. that's what I was thinking. Okay. So I, I actually got out of chapter. I really liked seeing Dick's show, um, but I got out of there quite quickly. That's the truth of it. I, what, what was the talent you had faith in then when, when you were consoling yourself in, during these difficult times with the genuine belief? And I think the bus story is relevant to that because it speaks of escape. It was as if you always had a concept of being able to escape into a... Mm. an interesting world you might not have known a lot about it but what was the talent that you felt you had um well when i was 16 my, my mother uh kind of convinced me to, to start volunteering at the local radio station uh, i was called cbc at the time i think it's called red dragon now yes it is, yeah. Yeah. um so i started like volunteering there and there was this dj called binder singh and he took me under his wing and put me on the air and I used to like cut together bits of tape. Physically, with razor blades. Yeah, literally. Incredible. And I, I actually put together um, bits of music. That, at Cardiff High, they were doing something on the dangers of drugs and drinking. So I went into CBC and cut together little bits of songs, like a collage of little bits of songs that were about alcohol or drugs. So it's like at the time, it was things like Dr. Feelgood and yeah. The Who. And and I put them all together, and they played them in the they played it in the assembly, and afterwards people were like, "Wow, you know, you've got like like we we still don't like you, but you have a you have a talent," uh, and, and I just always thought I always thought I did have a talent uh, for for writing or for radio or for something like that. I tell you the weird thing about it though, and, and I really can't get to grips with this. I'm being completely honest, and I don't yeah. think these stories are making me look particularly good, but I'm just being well, completely well, I, honest. I, I think they probably right. are, but right. <laughs> well, honesty is a good thing. Well, quite <laughs> not long ago, when I was writing Say so You've Been Publicly Shamed, I had coffee with um, the former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy, and we got talking about both of us being bullied as kids. He, right. he was gay, and that's why he was bullied. Um, and I did, and we both got really upset. Yeah. And I was sitting thinking to myself, God, I'm in a coffee bar in Manhattan, with the former governor of New Jersey, and um, you know, and I've done really well in my life, and and we're both really shackled by these by this thing that happened like such a long time ago. Like like my bad years of being bullied were from maybe the age of fifteen to eighteen. So three years out of my fifty years, mm. I, I don't understand why why it's followed me around like this shadow like my whole life because i think you know my social anxiety comes from it you know uh, i i get really nervous about going to parties i tend not to go to parties um i have you know i have a kind of lack of self-worth which only stops being that way when i do good work you know so much of my self-worth is kind of wrapped up in, in the work that I do. How, how long does the tank stay full? How long after doing it, really? Because, I mean, the project that you've described as being your least favourite of Men Who Stare at Goats was for people who aren't aware, it was turned into a film starring George Clooney. So on your kind of, if that's the like, wah, wah, on the list of things, all, um, all of the others you're clearly much happier with. But how long after, for example, publishing The Psychopath Test in 2011, did you begin to doubt yourself again or, um, or not? Sort of straight away. But really? it's not, yeah, but, but you know, then you read somebody, like you go on Twitter and somebody's 
you know, praising yes. it, and then you feel happy. To the heavens. Yeah, so then you sort of feel happy again for a bit. But but I never, like, you know, it means that you can't rest on your laurels. Maybe it'll happen one day. Maybe in about 10 or 15 years' time, I'll, I'll be able to just relax and look back on things and think it was okay. But but right now, the the problem is that I... Um, you know, it's, it's, I asked Randy Newman this question. I, I made a documentary years ago about Randy Newman called I Am Unfortunately Randy Newman. And I asked him, um, um, <laughs> I asked him why he writes songs. And he said, it's how I judge myself and how I feel better. Okay. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, that's quite a sad mm. response. But it's completely it, true of it's me. It's who he is. It's what yeah. you are. You, yeah, can't, you can't help it. Yeah. So when did that evolve that 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 you know that moment in Wales with the splicing of the tapes and the selection of the music and a clever edit and a witty production process isn't it that that you mm. that you did yeah there's still nothing there that you could have turned into a career what 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 would you describe as ambition what what was um just at the time just getting out of cardiff yeah um i <laughs> uh, but because my mother you know sort of forced me to volunteer at the local radio how, how 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 hard did she have to bend your arm on that i mean did she Quite, take you to the door of the pretty much yeah push you yeah <laughs> i i wasn't academically gifted like i only got i think i got seven o levels and two a levels really yeah and um so my mother kind of thought you know the only way he's going to make something out of himself is through some sort of practical experience right. so so she kind of forced me to do it and and she was right that's why, why what, do you think she thought radio would be a good or was there just not a lot of options in Cardiff um, well I mean I, I definitely glamorized all of that yes. stuff like I yes. would I remember like the age of like four or five like sitting there listening to uh um John Peel mm. and, the, and the radio one chart show and pretending you know daydreaming you know that that sort of that I was the person yes. on the radio introducing the songs and then the Chapter Art Centre, which was like my my saviour in Cardiff, um, I'd go there and see. I remember the double bills, like you know, I, I remember seeing a double bill of Scorsese's King of Comedy and Woody Allen's Zelig, cool. and and you know, really loving it, like clutching hold of these things. It's like you know, it's like a kind of um, you know, like a proof, life, yeah, a proof well, that you were bigger than, yeah, proof that there was life outside, yeah, being, and, and that you got it. As well, in a way that some of the people at school wouldn't have done it. In a... Maybe, or certainly, or just there was a world. It was like a glimmer into a world outside Cardiff yes. High and outside Cardiff. And, and um, this makes me sound anti-Cardiff, by the way, which I'm not at all. You keep worrying about how you're sounding. I promise you that you're, okay. you're sounding neither anti-Cardiff nor nor nor, nor right. unlikable. I promise. Yeah, you. and I'm not anti-Cardiff yeah, at all. Like, like you know, when I went back for my father's funeral a few months ago, you know, I, other than the fact that my father had died and it was very sad. Yes. Um, it, you know, it was nice to see my old, you know, to see Dick again. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. we went to the Hellenish Golf Club, which was where the service was after the funeral. And, and it's home. Yeah. And I was thinking, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but I was thinking it's very pretty, <laughs> like um, yes. rolling hills. <laughs> it's like upstate New York. It's very pretty. Uh, yeah. So... Um, Back to the right. Back to your mum shoving you through yeah. the door of the radio station. It's going well. It, you, yeah, you've and been taken under wings, but but still and I not got, a career in the. Well, I got it. It got me a place at the Polytechnic of Central London, right. uh, To do media studies, do journalism, which and, at the time was one of probably only two such courses in the country. I yeah, think. and it was hugely like over like absolutely. Somebody told me there was like. I think they they accepted thirty people a year, and mm. there was like three thousand people yeah, applying. That, that sounds feasible. Yeah. Um, 
my fellow alumni, I think they came slight, but just before me was Michael Jackson, who ended up being the head of the BBC and yeah. Channel 4. Just after me was uh, Charlie Brooker and Danny Wallace and uh, my friend Emmy the Great, the singer. So, you know, produced some really good people. Evidently. Um, and I tell you, the second my mother dropped me off at the Hall's residence on Bolsover Street, my life just transformed. Really? Yeah, I'd just turned 18 and my mother dropped me off and I went into the hall of residence and the guy in the next room, his name was Dippin' Joshy, said, I'm going to come for a drink. And that second, my life just transformed. I, I went from... Oh, that's magic. Yeah, being really... And honestly, other than my anxiety, yes. um, my life's been really great. Had you, had, you, had you suspected? Because those three years, mm. uh, I mean, lots of people get bullied, rarely for that long. And that, those three years are so formative. Mm. Had you suspected that, because you mentioned Zelig and Kinga Comedy giving you a window on another world, did you almost fantasise about a world where people were a bit more like you, or at least, you know, where you had friends and you had a, a yeah. social circle and you could talk about all the stuff that you found interesting without pretending that you found the stuff everybody else found interesting interesting absolutely and and college like gave me all of that um and and oh, the other thing i was doing around the same time when i was 17 was i was going off on my own to to edinburgh and just hanging out with to the festival yeah and basically just sitting there like you know, to this day, you will see yes. awkward people just like me at the age of 17, yes. sitting in comedy clubs, just sitting and staring. Drinking and, it in. Yeah, drinking it in. And I was one of those people. I remember Mark, I wonder if he remembers this. I remember Mark Thomas coming up to me really crossly um, in like the late 80s or mid to late 80s. I was like, I see you. He said to me like, I see you, you know, at these clubs. I've seen you all the time and you just sit there and you're not doing anything. When are, when are you going to do something? Um, yeah. And I, I remember that as a real kind of like... Cause you're already an undergraduate by this point. If Probably. Yes. I, or, or maybe I hadn't even gone to college right. yet. I was just like a When are you going fan. to do something? Yeah. And Had you asked yourself that at that point? I, I wonder why Mark Thomas like... Picked up on it. Picked up on it. But he did. And, and I, don't, I have no idea if he remembers that. But it, that was definitely a moment when I thought... He's quite an intuitive person, Mark Thomas, isn't he? And he's possessed of epic levels of compassion as well. I think the first time yeah. I met him, they were telling me about a time that him and some of the other comedians from that era had done a benefit and he couldn't remember whether they'd given the money to the miners or the dockers after the pay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, right. so he's looking at other people's experiences in a way that some, some comedians are too solipsistic to do. So perhaps yes. he just saw something above your head, a miasma of unfulfilled promise. Yeah, and it certainly motivated did me. Did it? Yeah. And, and I what thought, did it motivate? I mean, because I still, early days, mm. what, 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 what would be the outlet for all of these almost like gathering forces within you? Well, what, what happened was after two years of college um, where I just bummed around, and, but I needed to. I, was, like, I, I, I realised that if, if you wanted to have a good life in London, you needed to live in, in a squat because if you were renting on a student loan, student grant. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome. 
Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Most days. Um, you'd have to live in that Turnham Green. And then they'd be like, you know, you'd be travelling back and forth. I currently and... live in Turnham Green. Oh, really? <laughs> it's changed a lot, <laughs> right. I promise you. Um, I, I'm not dissing Turnham Green, I'm dissing the <laughs> travel time. Any more than time. you were a gardener. Right. No, I grant you, but you'd struggle to live in Turnham Green on a student grant these days. Right. <laughs> Just for any estate yeah. agents listening. <laughs> so you had to live in a squat, so you had a disposable income. Yeah, exactly. So so exa- in, in squat, so there was this guy called Mark, Mark Cornell, who was like people say see that guy over there he's Mark Corness he's like involved in the squatters network so I so I plucked up the courage to, to go up to Mark Corness and say um you know I hear that you know you know where people can squat and he was like yeah so we can so I started squatting and I and I squatted in Highbury and Islington and Bayswater some of my contemporaries were like squatting I remember the Libyan embassy got mm. got mm. squatted and people who I knew were squatting the Libyan embassy so we were living in these in these like beautiful Mansions, townhouses yeah, yeah I mean they were they were they were rats that was the <laughs> downside but we weren't playing red so we could hardly complain um, so for so for a couple of years, I just bummed around um, in squats and you know being hedonistic. And then I met I met two people. I met um, this band called the Man from Del Monte, and I met Frank Sidebottom and and his like crew. And they both kind of convinced me because I was the social secretary at the Polytechnic. After two years of college, I became the social secretary. Which means you book the acts and yeah. you run the kind of gig side of the. Yeah. college life. I used to book a comedy show every week called Frank's Wild Tuesdays. Um, and we, we had Jerry Sadowitz, we had Vic Reeves before he was wow. Vic and Bob. Yeah. That's how early it was. Uh, and all and all the great comedians of the time like did our thing. And then and I, I was less good at booking bands because I didn't have any kind of particular sure. musical aptitude. But um, I met Frank Sidebottom and I met the man for the Monty and they both said to me, um, you should move to Manchester. Frank was like, "Come and be in the band," and the man for Monty was like, "Come and manage us." So I, so I quit college and moved to Manchester. And when I was in Manchester, I started writing for the local listings magazine, City Life. I was already writing for the college newspaper in London. What year would this be? Eighty-seven. Uh, so okay. just before Manchester, you never did theatre reviews, did you? No, because I, I got a stinker in 1988 from City Life in oh, really? for, for a show I did with the youth theatre. I was just oh double God. checking. So that, the, no, was, that, was that the first time you got money for journalism? Though? Yeah. Okay. I remember my lecturer, my college lecturer, David Cardiff, uh, who was this incredibly brilliant and charismatic man. He was married to Lynn Barber. Oh wow! Yes. Yeah, and and he died. He died really young. He died in his fifties, and he said to me, he took me for coffee, and he said, "You are the only person who writes for the college." magazine who's got any writing talent wow um did you believe him yeah like so so like mark thomas saying that to me yes and david cardiff saying that to me uh, were really important like it was the the first praise i ever yes i ever really had and and um yeah so when i moved to manchester i started writing for city life i was getting paid like 40 quid for a film review and it just was obvious that that's that was what i was cracked up to do and from from the local press in Manchester, st- straight to the Guardian. Pretty much, yeah. Yes. I, I got because your talent was spotted. 
Yeah, well, what happened? Are you good at knocking on doors, John? Are you good? At, yes. You well, are. I don't enjoy it because no. I'm because I'm introverted. Of course, but but I'm good at it. Okay. Um, being a journalist, you have to be like a, a hustler yes. in every way to get the story, to get the story placed. You know, you have to be a hustler. You have to be this tireless hustler. Mm. So I've I've always been that. Um, Actually, between City Life and The Guardian, I, I worked for a local radio station. The, the other person to take me under his wing was Terry Christian Crikey. from The Word. Really? Yeah. He was presenting the show. Another generous man. Yeah, he was really generous. Mm. Um, he basically got me a job at the local radio station, KFM. And then when he went off and did The Word, I took over his show. And I would co-present with Craig Cash and oh, Caroline Hearn. Seriously? Yeah. So Good the three grief. of us, me, Craig and Caroline, were doing these late night shows. And and we got we all got fired one day um, <laughs> because um, we weren't, we were too niche, basically. Right. So we all got fired. And that's how I got work down in London because there was this big campaign to get us reinstated. So suddenly Time Out and The Guardian were, were like aware of us. It was like a bit of a, it was noise that these three um, sort of maverick people up in Manchester had been like, you know, cruelly fired. There were like newspaper articles about it. And and I think that helped all of us, actually. Yes, so you rode that wave. Of, yeah, of, of, as did Craig and Caroline. And, absolutely. And they went off and did uh, Mrs Merton. And I went down to London and started working for like Time Out and The Guardian and then eventually the BBC. Did you have in your mind an idea of the kind of journalist you wanted to be? Or were you trying lots of different things in the in the in the smorgasbord of, of, of the media and deciding what you then deciding uh, what you wanted to? Focus the latter, on? although it wasn't, it wasn't lots of things. It no. was one thing yes. I, I was um, I was a big fan of. Victor Lewis Smith yes. and Hunter S. Thompson and PJ O'Rourke. The Gonzo. To yeah, the Gonzo. And Victor, what does that mean for people who don't who haven't heard the word before? How would you? I guess it means you know first like adventures where you are the first person you know mm. where you're part of the story as the yes. writer, obviously rather than the outsider observing. Yeah, but the other <clears> thing that they were was kind of acerbic. I mean, like Victor yes. was kind of cruel, vicious. Yeah. And I, so for a while, I kind of pretended to be vicious. Uh, Did that come easily to you? Yeah, but it was it was kind of fake. Like I was good at being playing a character. Yeah, like Craig Cash and Caroline. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I remember. Ter Do you know the playwright Terry Johnson? Yes. Yeah, great playwright. Anyway, I wanted to to interview him one time for something. And he told me afterwards that the only reason why he wanted to meet me was to find out if I was as vicious in real life as I was on the page. So that's how vicious I was. Well, and of course uh, you weren't. You were nowhere near as vicious in real life, were you? As nowhere you near. Terry Johnson told me, told me that he <laughs> was disappointed. I was going to say, yeah. what, a day, what an anticlimax. Yeah, he said, he said that to me. It's, it's anticlimax in meeting you. You're just this kind of soft liberal. So I mean, you could, <laughs> I often wonder, I don't know whether you've given this any thought, but, but the people who are professionally vile, which is probably a more lucrative mm. branch of the media in this country at this point in time than it was when you were on the way up. But but the mm. people who are professionally vile, I often wonder if they started off doing it as an act and yeah. actually realised it was more lucrative than anything else they had in their yeah. in their arsenal. I'm not, you know, when you're in this bubble of British media, I think you don't realise that the kind of oppositional sort of viciousness yes. of the British media is not... It's, that's not that doesn't happen all over the world. That's quite a kind of quite a British thing, mm. and in some ways it's good, of course. Um, in other ways, it's not so good. It's not so good for someone like me. Like 
on the very, very rare occasions, on the you know vanishingly rare occasions that I'll do a show like Have I Got News For You, yes. it's not good because I'm just, it's like a bad one night stand because I just don't thrive in that kind of, you know, oppositional. Um, That's not that oppositional either. I, I did a, mm. a bit of a did you humble bad it for the first time last month and I, I, I didn't even think it was, I forgot it was a competition until they read out the scores at the end. Right. I was just desperately trying to make Paul Merton like me. Okay. <laughs> well, I, Ian, I dedicated myself to that. <laughs> well, Ian Hislop kind of had it in for me a little did bit. Did he? Yeah, I don't quite, it came as a, as a surprise. Yeah, well, there, then again, yeah. I suppose he, he, he is a, a you know, a, 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 a blades mm. exposed type of performer, yeah. isn't he? But I, I, I much prefer something more contemplative. Yeah, and and empathetic and curious, yes. and you know, and also giving people the space to think and talk. Um, so yeah, so I suppose what what sort of turned me into the into the writer that the I became, John Ronson that I am today. Yeah, <laughs> I, I became a I became a really big fan of Nick Broomfield. Right, he's a sort of documentary maker who again immerses himself in his subject in a way that was, if not unprecedented, then certainly very 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 rare. Yeah, Nick Nick too was quite sort of passive aggressive. I mean, we all were at the time, like me, Nick, uh, Louis Theroux. Yes. You know, we, we, we all sort of did that. And did you mix? Um, yeah. Because I know, I know Louis. I don't know Nick Brinfield. He stood behind me once. They were toying with the idea of making a documentary about the Daily Express. Okay. And the editor, Rosie Boycott, was friends with him. Mm -hmm. So he came in and, and got assigned to my department and just sat behind us grunting all day. Oh, you know, really? And just sort of barking quite aggressive questions at us and things like that. And I'm not <laughs> sure he came away with a full picture of So were you, were you the three names you mentioned, you threw and Brinfield, would you have seen yourselves as part of, this, of the same movement? Yeah. Okay. In fact, as a joke that. one time, um, uh, Sight and Sound asked me to write an essay about the movement. So as a joke, I gave us a, a name, like a French name. Um, I said we were Les Nouvelles Egotistes. And, and on it's still there on Wikipedia, even though I was kidding. I'm looking that up. Yeah. Really, it's been left up there. Yeah. Oh, that's better. Isn't that brilliant? And, and that was an attempt to to be part of the, of the story and be part of the Yeah. But I think process. we kind of, we all change so we all started off with that sort of air of moral superiority like uh, nick was better than south african neo-nazis yes. you know louis was better than the ku klux cloud i was better than islamic fundamentalists but i think all three of us um changed like and i think we all realized that being curious and empathetic and compassionate ultimately makes for like better stories and uh, I, I can't tell you sort of why they changed because so for instance Nick's film his most recent film about Whitney Houston is mm. is very Absolutely. you know it's it's really good and it's very sweet and very compassionate Louis's best stuff I think is I mean I, I really like Louis stuff and, and my favorite of Louis stuff is when he's much more curious and compassionate too and well, uh, there's I, the daughter of the um the Baptists, what's the, the something Borough Baptist Church? Oh, yeah, the, the, Meg and Phelps. Yes, that's an astonishing relationship that he has with her, isn't it? That, yeah. That he, just, he just really cares about her, it's clear to see. Funny Rather enough, I've than got sort to, of standing back and going, hmm. Yeah, I've got to know Megan pretty well. Yeah, when So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, I got approached by, by the most unexpected people, uh, people who'd been shamed yes. or people who were feeling guilty about things they'd done in their lives. And, and, and some of them have become friends and Megan Phelps is one of them. We're, we're pretty good friends she, now. She's in a better place now. Oh, she's, she's a great person. Um, she's about to be a really big star because um, uh, Nick Hornby's writing a 
movie based on her life. Oh wow! Yeah, the Reese Witherspoon's company's making. Um, so Megan's about to become like this big, and and right, she's an amazing person. I don't. Well, when you well, made your first, what was the first film that you made? Then was uh, that the uh, the first proper film I made was with Saul Dib. Uh, it was called New York to California: A Great British Odyssey, and it was a road journey from. Um, from New York, which is a little village in Norfolk, to a caravan site called California Sands a few miles down the road. And we basically did this entire journey, this hour-long film of the two of us on the road, on this very short journey. How did uh, you pitch that? Um, or was it one of those occasions where you'd been was, trusted enough to... Yeah, there was a, there was one... No one trusted us. No. But, <laughs> Can't except think for, why. But, <laughs> just one person who was, a, who was the commissioning editor for religion at the time, uh, Peter Grimsdale at Channel 4, and he really liked us. And he, he put me and Saul together and we made New York to California. And then we made... The following year, we made Tottenham Ayatollah, which oh, was my Amabaku yes. film. And that was the film that sort of really launched... Me and Saul. Into, into a whole new level. I, I just, yeah. We'll talk about the butterfly effect now. But before, just one other thing. That, again, looking back, and I know you won't have seen these, um, but the, the the previous guest on Unfiltered, whose, whose story tallies the most with yours, oddly, is Armando Iannucci. Really? Not only because his first ever kind of exposure to the media was cutting stuff up with razor blades and splicing together his own projects, but also, I mean, perhaps even more bizarrely, when he ended up, coming to, to London and meeting up with other people that some producers thought he might be able to collaborate with. He ended up meeting people like Steve Coogan. Mm. Um, and, and you ended Robert. up meeting people like Carolina Hearn and, and Craig Cash. Yeah. And, and, and the word that he used was serendipity. He feels lucky while describing, to my mind, he was describing a talent that was always going to be discovered. He still felt lucky that it had been. You, you mm. I, I'd love to know how lucky you feel because you simultaneously had this security blanket in Cardiff of thinking, I am, I am, it's not a word you'd have used, but I'm going to use it. I am better than this, or at least I'm bigger than this. And and yet having the anxiety. So how much of a role do you think luck has played in what you've described as a, as a very successful career? It's, it's a really good question because, like, you know, it's certainly certain really lucky things happen to me. People, people in high positions sort of spotted me and yes. decided to give me a chance. So the people that I mentioned, plus... There was, a mag there was a magazine at the time called The Sunday Correspondent, yes. yeah, and the editor, Ian Parker, kind of gave me a chance. Uh, Chris Heath on Smash Hits gave me a chance. Um, so I feel very lucky that, that they all kind of saw the, saw the promise in me. But there was still the promise there. That's the point. Yeah, there was, you know, there, there was the promise there. Um, Do you think there's any great undiscovered talents? That, that tried and failed to get into the kind of businesses you've been in. I mean, you hope not because you, you, not. you want the world to be egalitarian and a true meritocracy. But sometimes I fear that's not true. Sometimes, mm. I, I think, you know, being talented isn't enough. You have to put yourself out there. You have to be this kind of tireless hustler. Mm. Um, you need both. So there are, I'm sure, and I know one or two of them, like really, really talented people who didn't make it because... They didn't knock on doors and yeah. they, they didn't they didn't put themselves out. It's funny, there. Robert Webb spoke about being in his late twenties and him and David Mitchell had cracked the writing side of it, but it was beginning to look as if they were never gonna break through on the performance side of it. And that I think would have consigned him to a life of feeling that he never quite crossed over the line. Right. What, what was it was it that first Omar Bakri film that made you feel you'd all right, I'm over the line now, this is where I want to be. And now it's up yeah. to me to consolidate and build on this, but this is where I want to be. That that film really kind of um was important. 
it coincided with these little Hi8 cameras coming out, these right. tiny little cameras. And that meant me and Saul could be, uh, we could we could just go out and do it, you know. We, we, it, it was almost like an early form of like, you know, podcasting or blogging. Mm. Like we, we didn't have to wait for anybody to give us permission. We could just go out and film. These cameras cost nothing. You know, you didn't need a crew. So, and Tottenham Ayatollah was the first, I think other than this series at the time called Video Diaries, it was the first film ever shot on one of those little cameras to, to go on sort of mainstream TV right. at nine o'clock at night. And it really, it became very influential for that. For sure. Uh, because we really, you know, we we managed to sort of infiltrate this very closed world of Islamic militants, pe people who it turned out would end up committing acts of terrorism. And we would never have managed it if we didn't look like scruffy students and we didn't have a tiny little camera so it was a really influential film in that way in in the in the technological way as well and when we track the the journey from one project to the next the the butterfly effect has its origins in so you've been shamed yeah because you were interviewing a pornographic actress mm -hmm. while while making while writing that book and clocked the chateau marmont i think yeah wasn't it? Do I pronounce that correctly? The Chateau, I, I say the Chateau Marmont, but Mom, I think right. some people say Marmont. Uh, <laughs> you, you clocked that while she was dressed in a way that at work gets her um, the right kind of attention outside of work and the environment in which you met her, you, you were struck by how people reacted to it. Yeah, so I was meeting, I'd never met a porn star before. I was in my room at the Chateau Marmont. And uh, by the way, the first time I was supposed to meet her, she just completely forgot. And I was sitting in a restaurant for like three hours. No. Yeah. And finally, I went on Twitter and I went on her Twitter feed. Yeah. And she just, and like two hours earlier, she tweeted, I know I'm supposed to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Why have I got that? <laughs> she completely forgot. And anyway, so then the next day, she came to my, she came to the lobby of the hotel and the, the receptionist said, Your guest is waiting for you downstairs. And so I went downstairs. And yeah, we, the, everyone else was dressed like I'm dressed in, like you know, yes. inconspicuous introvert. The in, the clothing of the media introvert, uh, except for Donna, who was dressed in this bright blue dress and looked, you know, incredible. Looked like this kind of great mad peacock, you know, with a face that that you just like, you know, she'd seen some things, yes, you know, yes. she had stories to tell. She'd lived an amazing life in in a in a shadowy world. You know, she was hugely intriguing to me. So I walked towards her and I looked over at the receptionist and he was looking at her with a look of contempt, uh, disgust. Yeah. Like, what are you, what is someone like you doing at this hotel? And and I thought to myself, you know, I bet you watch porn and I bet you're fine with Princess Donna when she's on your computer. Mm. And that, that gave me the spark of wanting to do a show about porn, which, which then turned into a show about the butterfly effect of the tech takeover of the porn industry. Did you know at that moment that you were going to have a proper look at doing something bigger? I, I'm fascinated by your creative process. I think so. I think that that look definitely stayed with me. And I think once I'd finished So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I was thinking, what am I going to do next? Yes. And, and I remembered that look. What happened next was I, I started reading um blogs by porn people mm. i just started meeting porn people i met stoyer i met chanel preston these like big names in porn and they all agreed to meet me yes uh and Did they know your work um 
Um, Chanel Preston did because she's friends with this guy, Connor Habib, who's a gay porn star. Right. He's a fan of mine. Okay. He, he tweeted me one time and said, you know, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a gay porn star. If you want to know any what more, want to know more about my work, just Google me. Mm. So I Googled him and just immediately saw these, you know, massive close-ups of his anus. <laughs> <laughs> Such history must be a thing to behold. And, uh, so I, uh, he came to one of my talks in at a bookstore in Los Angeles, and I told that story. And he was in the audience, and he just went, "You're welcome." <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, so, so she knew who I was, and I was just sort of thinking, what what story could I possibly do about porn? Yes. And and then I found I started reading blogs by people like Stoyer, and the same name kept coming up, which was Fabian, and and the porn world was very annoyed with a man called Fabian. So I started trying to find out who's Fabian, and it turns out that Fabian's the man who basically became hugely rich from giving the world free porn on sites like Pornhub. And a giant flow of money went from the San Fernando Valley into Fabian's pocket. Specifically into his... Yeah. Because he was a tech entrepreneur who just spotted a... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, he spotted that unusually for porn, they were behind the curve right. when it came to tech. Normally, they push the technology to its limits. Don't exactly, they? but not with the internet. You know, YouTube was already going, yeah. and nobody had thought, let's do YouTube for porn. So Fabian essentially did it. And, uh, that, and that is, <clears throat> it seems to me, these these are the these are the, the moments where you feel like you've you're panning for gold and you see this name keeps coming up because you use the mm. phrase the tech takeover of porn at this point before you started coming across his name in these blogs you didn't know there'd been a tech takeover no, of didn't porn. know anything about so it's almost world. like the, 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 this, the, these things start coalescing yeah. in your mind and you think this is a story that no one else has told and that's the first point at which you think this yes. could be my next project it was hiding in plain sight that's the phrase um, and actually um, the fact that nobody else had told this story, that's always really important to me. I, I always yes. want to tell a story that other people don't do, which has its pitfalls too, because like, I would really love to do all this sexual predator stuff that's happening, um, but I worry about it because, because of the competition I'd be in with other journalists and because I'm slow. Right. So I always... so. So it does cut down. Like wanting to do a story that nobody else does does cut down my possibilities. Because you're interested in things that have been told, and you might have something new to say about them. But you, you, you as you say, you, you yeah, it'd be stressful because yes. I'm slow, you know. And whereas people on the New York Times, they're fast, right? So yeah. Um, no, my real epiphany uh, was on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy, okay, where a couple of things happened which were just <laughs> astonishing to me. There's a few days in my life where, like everything changed. And one of them was when I was writing them and I suddenly had this brainwave. Um, they all, you know, these conspiracy theorists all believe that there's a secret room, you know, inside which a shadowy cabal secretly rules yes. the world. Yes. Why don't I hook up with them and we'll try and find the secret room? Yes. So that yeah. was one real epiphany. Yeah. And then my second, another epiphany was, uh, was all these leading psychologists believe that psychopaths rule the world. There's a particular mental disorder that's so powerful, it rules the world. Why don't I learn how to be a psychopath spotter and journey into the corridors of power? Uh, and that's what gave me the idea to write the psychopath test. And another epiphany happened on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy. Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy. Yeah, it was when the, the second cameraman, it's very rare for there to be a second cameraman on right. porn sets these days because all the money's gone to Fabian <laughs> uh, to spend on his aquarium that's so big it's got his own diver. Uh, but, um, but the second cameraman, Nate, said to me, rare day for me shooting real porn. Uh, and I, so I was like, well, what do you do normally? 
And he said, customs. Right. And I said, what's customs? He said, oh, bespoke porn. We make entire porn films for just one viewer. So when, when Nate told me that, I was like, Here we go. I'm going to get in the bespoke porn world. Because what an insight into people's inner lives. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and some of the inner lives that you unearth are, 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 are staggering. It's a seven-part mm -hmm. audio series mm -hmm. <clears throat> that you've done with Audible. So it's available on iTunes and um, all the other outlets. Yeah. How do you decide what medium to employ? For, um, for, for a project, I mean, why not a book? There'll probably be a book, yeah. will there? On this, or? I'm not sure actually. My well, there you go then. So there isn't yeah. there, nothing. I can take nothing for granted. How, how come? Yeah. Why, well, why for this one, a seven-part audio series? Well, a few things happened. Firstly, I noticed I, I was listening more and more to podcasts. Yes, uh, and I've always so here's a tip actually for kind of budding you know journalists. I, I think it's always a really good idea to to try and work for people that you yourself are a consumer of because uh, there'll be a kind of shared. Yes. Um, interest and right from the beginning you know I, I wanted to work for Time Out because I liked Time mm. Out same with The Guardian same with Channel 4 and these days it's it's podcasting and, and Audible like like I listen to audio books more than I read physical books okay. and uh, also lots of people listen to me on audio book instead of reading my books mm. so when Aud Audible came along and said do you fancy doing you know we, we want to branch out into kind of original stuff um, it helped that they had a budget. Yes, most most podcast companies don't have much money, and and I work in such a kind of labour intensive way. I yes. need money. You know, I'll fly all the way to Los Angeles for what will turn out to be fifty seconds right. of material. Yes, uh, so I need somebody who's willing to spend that kind of money of on, on the show. And really, all I can there might be other companies, but the only two companies I can think of that have that kind of money are Audible and This American Life. Mm. Um, so it all sort of all just came together. Blade. And my American publisher said to me, I, I don't want you to write a book that's, really? that's about porn. Well, because? He, he said um, it, it will really cut down. You know, he, he basically, you know, he, he felt, and, I, you know, I think he's probably right. Yes. He felt that I'm not going to, in America, it's really important to get on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Right, or, you are. Or to get on Morning Edition. Or, yes. You know these these big NPR and they're not shows going to invite you on to talk about, to talk about porn. So cheerleader, stepdaughter team. Audrey. Uh, as it turned out, actually, the the butterfly effect has has been a hit. Yes, precisely. Yeah, a big hit. Yeah, but whether it would have been a big hit as a book, Jeff may well have been right. And also, it keeps you fresh. New new uh, new platforms, new media. I mean, you yeah. know, it was real fun as well. Yes. Bringing out so you've been publicly shamed was not fun. Why not? It, it was noisy. Like oh, everyone had an opinion. Yeah, of course, of course. And everything in it was 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 it was an ongoing fight, wasn't it? it yeah, was an ongoing argument. Exactly. So. I, I also wanted to do something that was more fun. And I thought, correctly as it turned out, that doing a podcast with my producer, Lena, yes. the seats, excuse me, would, would be more fun. And I've been, it's, 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 you're here to encourage people to go and to go and listen to it. So I don't, I don't want to exhaustively explore what's in it. But I think you're right to, to cite the notion of customs as being the most interesting discovery. Yeah. But other really, really interesting stuff like... Um, well, one of my favourite things, in fact, the thing that stays with me is the most resonant. Again, it happened on the set of Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy, where the director said to me, you know, I never used to make films with titles like that. And I was like, what, what did your films used to be called? And he said, the very first porn film I ever made was called Women of Influence. Good grief. And the problem is that because of the tech takeover of porn, it's become like an arms race of search engine optimization. Yeah. Everybody has to pile as many keywords into their film titles as possible, like Stepdaughter, Cheerleader and Orgy, to kind of, you know, get their way up the Google search rankings. So I said to Mike, does that mean there's people 
who, who fall between the keyword cracks, who can't mm. get work. And he was like, yes, if you're a 25-year-old adult film actress, uh, you're basically unemployable because you're too old to be a teen and you're too young to be a MILF. You're just attractive and just attractive isn't a searchable term. And yet once that would have been the, the yeah. key demographic of porno stars. Yeah. So I, I was thinking, like, isn't that's the internet all over, right? Yeah, isn't, isn't that it? political isn't discourse it? on Twitter if yeah. you're not a teen yeah. and you're not a MILF, if you're not like a, if you're not like a kind <laughs> of no right lunatic? That's yeah. incredible. So I identified, politically, I identified with the 25-year-old adult film actress <laughs> as a kind of left-leaning <laughs> moderate. I'm not but a teen. then there's the I'm saturation element as well. So they can have months mm. of or weeks even, of, of uh, decent earning. And then suddenly, because of the nature of the internet, they're everywhere and they're, they're, there's no need to pay them to do anything else ever again. Yeah, and, and the valley's just inundated with 18-year-old you know, women who've grown up on Pornhub and think that looks cool. Mm. Um, you know, there's no longer an, an outlaw status to porn. And of course, in some ways, you know, as somebody who doesn't believe in stigma, sure, uh, that's good. But in, in other ways, it's bad because it means their shelf life is in incredibly short they you know unless you you could somehow cut through and some women do there's a there's a there's a woman called janice griffiths who's a big star now and uh so some women cut through but most work for three weeks don't work anymore go back to where they came from and now have to live in terror that they're you poor. examine this as well you have one mm-hmm. one girl who finds out her mum yeah has been doing porn because the film's some of her classmates see a nurse, on Pornhub, a nurse yeah. who loses his job, yeah. who'd given up. Because uh, hypocrisy over and over again, yeah. you know, it's just, it's hypocrisy. And the custom stuff, I mean, to give the kind of headline examples, there's one man in Norway pays a... Uh, pays, the man in Norway pays porn stars to, to destroy his very valuable stamp collection. So me and Lena became like obsessed with like, you know, tracking down stamps man, tracking down condiments man gremlins man to find out their stories like what led them to this moment how much is fabian worth now do we know uh, i don't know but i do know that he's got his own diver who comes to clean his coral reef <laughs> in his aquarium as uh, as um this artist bob gibson said to me who'd visited fabian's house he said that's next level isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um, every time I meet you, I always ask what you're going to do next. I'm not sure you've ever told me. Do you know? Uh, yeah, I, I can't give you that the details. But, um, the other thing I did this year was I, I, I co-wrote with Bong Joon Ho uh, the movie Okja course, on yes, Netflix, and and it was it was kind of a hit. Yes. I, well, it was a hit. I don't even need to say kind of. No, it, was, it was a it was hit. Huge. And as a result, I've been offered a couple of screenplays. So even though it's out of my comfort zone, like I, I feel very confident in in nonfiction and much less confident in fiction, I'm going to spend the next year working on these screenplays. Brilliant. Yeah. A um, couple of, for the for the company A24, who were, who, who gave the world Moonlight, and uh, um, they, they, they're just about to bring out this film, which I would recommend to everybody, called Lady Bird, which is starring Saoirse Ronan and directed by Greta Gerwig. They're, they're such a great independent film company, so I feel very lucky that they've taken an interest in me. And I, I would recommend The Butterfly Effect similarly to everybody, and, and also all, all of, I'm not going to lie to you, I haven't read Club Class, but all of, John's, so. all of John's other work, <laughs> Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Men Who Stare at Goats, um, The Psychopath Test, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and now, as we say, The Butterfly Effect. I unreservedly recommend every single one of them. John Rosser, thank you so much. James, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And as is the tradition by this point in the series, I'm joined now by the producer of Unfiltered, Rich, to sort of cast a quick glance 
into the rearview mirror. Um, I, 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 every single time I interview John, and it's only three or four times, I don't want to make it sound like I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> um, I, I, I find that we reach the end of our allotted time together and think that we could have carried on for, for five times longer. And that mm. was an hour. That's yeah. the longest time I've ever had with him. And I still got to the end and felt, crikey, we, we, we did more than scratch the surface, though. I think. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting to hear him on the other end of mm. the Inquisition. Um, and he's really open and honest and seemed like forthcoming, like as you would hope, because that's what he expects of the people he talks to. So there were a couple of moments where I, I wondered whether he felt he was being too forthcoming. There were a couple of moments where he think? sort of seemed to think he was being a bit too honest. Where? What do you what do you think? Well, I, the, the, I think he was worried uh, about the, the talking about his childhood stuff. I think I don't know whether he was worried that mm. he was giving up too much of himself or he was worried that he was sounding a little bit when he says wanted to stress that he, he wasn't slagging off Cardiff and he wanted to make sure that he was mm. um coming across in the way he wanted to come across as, which I think is part of his genius, actually, is that constant blend of vulnerability and fearlessness. Yeah, and care. Care, At the same yes. time, yeah, he really cares about the people that he talks to, and that comes across in the butterfly effects. You know, like he was saying, when people approach those kind of topics, they sometimes do it from a position of moral superiority, and he absolutely doesn't do that. You know, he's like buckets of empathy. He really yes. cares about these people and cares about their stories, which is why I think he is the kind of person that he is and the kind of journalist that he is. I'm going to go and dig out that article he wrote, pretending that him, Louis Theroux, and Nick Broomfield were the Les Nouvelles egotistes. <laughs> Send me it, will you? You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.